All right. Well, welcome. Welcome back to the Retro Time Podcast with a full episode today. We are back, Derek. We are back with a full episode. Feels great to be back. After our, uh, our move and break. Uh, if mm-hmm. you want to learn about our move, check out uh, last week's Retro Bite. Quick move and update. We'll give you the rundown of that. But today, we are getting back to it. Derek. Jeremy. And we're going to talk about uh, the butterfly effect today. If you aren't familiar with the butterfly effect, um, let me give you a little bit, a little bit of, uh, of a little background on it. In the year 1998, Derek, Evan Trayborn, who suffered severe abuse as a boy, blacks out frequently, often at moments of high stress. While entertaining a girl in his dorm, he finds that when he reads from his adolescent journals, he travels back in time and is also able to redo parts of his past. There are consequences to his choices, however, that then propagate back to his present life. His efforts are driven by the desire to undo the most unpleasant events of his childhood, which coincide with his mysterious blackouts, including saving his childhood sweetheart Kaylee from being molested by her father and tormented by her sadistic brother. The actions he takes and those he enables others to take during his blackouts change the timeline in the new future where he awakes. As he continues to do this, he realizes that even though his intentions are good, his actions have unforeseen consequences. How about that? Wow. Well, that I mean, that cleared it up for me, man. What was that? So that's the butterfly effect. <laughs> that's <laughs> if you aren't familiar with Aston Kutcher's 2004 smash hit, The Butterfly Effect. <laughs> That's just a quick synopsis from IMDb. Uh, <laughs> I'm familiar with so all that, his other work, man. Yeah, that's all right. Just, that's the show's the over. Thing. All right. Well, so check us out on Retro Time. <laughs> uh, so yeah, anyway, right. so that's the butterfly effect. All joking aside. Um, yeah. So the idea of the butterfly effect, it comes from chaos theory, right? Where, um, you know, the butterfly flaps its wings and it can cause basically a hurricane. So little, little, uh, little, little seemingly in, insignificant and inconsequential decisions that we make today can have lasting effects that we never intended. Much like Ashton Kutcher, uh, you know, you cannot, you cannot foresee what will happen. And even if your intentions are good, it, you can't, you can't predict what will happen. If anyone hasn't, by the way, seen 2004 uh, smash hit The Butterfly Effect, it's actually not a bad movie. I remember Derek going back. Uh, back in time, well, I didn't go back in time. When I say that, I, w- I remember going to see it at the movie theater. The movie theater back in two thousand four. Yeah, at the th- remember those when we used to yeah, go sit in movie, yeah. movies and see. So anyway, so how does this apply though to to us? I, I have actually one one other quick thing. This is um, something I think sums it up pretty pretty nicely. This is actually from I think Benjamin Franklin. Either he said this or he got this from somewhere, but this is a, something from Benjamin Franklin. I think this actually makes a lot of sense, and I think this will tie very nicely into our decisions that we make as software developers today and how the butterfly effect applies to software. So for want of a nail, the shoe was lost. For want of a shoe, the horse was lost. For want of a horse, the rider was lost. For want of a rider, the battle was lost. For want of a battle, the kingdom was lost. And all for the want of a horseshoe nail. You sure that wasn't a Trump tweet? It may have been a Trump tweet. Um, but (laughs) all of the, uh, we, we lost Pennsylvania because of a horseshoe. (laughs) Anyway, so the, um, the horseshoe nail here is inconsequential. It could be inconsequential. I mean, nothing could happen. The horse could have been fine. You could have won, you could have won the battle with that horse or the horse could have fallen. And because of that, uh, you lost the battle and the kingdom fell all because of a horseshoe nail. So the, and it could have gone either way. Right. And so when we think about software that we're building today, 
Um, and I think even for us, you know, as enterprise software teams, um, where uh, enterprise software tends to stick around for a while, those consequences become even more consequential. Is that right? They do. Yeah. Um, Extra consequential. Yeah. So um, so anyway, so that's it. Yeah. I don't know. That's what that's my take on it. What, what do you think? Yeah. You know, I would agree. I think in our space uh, in software, you, know, you often have uh, you often have that original goal that you're, you intended to kind of shoot for with software and the environment, things kind of change over time. And eventually you end up kind of veering off the path. Your focus changes, but kind of something I wanted to get into was, uh, you know, while the butterfly effect is an inevitability in the way we build software in the way we build systems, it's not always bad necessarily. Right. You know, so yeah. You know, we have we have systems that have, you know, unintended consequences that have ended up being very good because they were easy to change over time. You know, if you think about, you know, the way uh, the way some software has been built, the way some uh, infrastructure in our environments has been built, um, they built it in a way that they knew things were going to change over time. Um, and one example uh, where. It's kind of uh, the origins uh, mean a lot in in these kind of uh, in these kind of examples. So, I have this this concept of like the original reasoning behind something. And there's uh, a lot of systems that we think we know why they were originally built or designed, but we kind of may have been uh, misled over time. Uh, one of them is actually uh, typewriters. So why the why the keyboard? Uh, on your your computer, for example, uh, is set up the way it is, and for a lot of long time, people thought um, you know this was because they wanted to slow they wanted to slow original typists down because the keys would jam on the original typewriters. Turns out this isn't the case. It was to handle Morse code for uh, telegraph operators to be able to handle Morse code, and over time, the system evolved. It evolved slowly. Uh, so that original intent, that original reasoning behind why the system was uh, built wasn't, wasn't done for stupid reasons. I mean, they, they had an idea from the information they had at the time that, you know, a typewriter, for example, they, they, it was originally a, a alphabetical, um, A, B, C, D, okay. E, F, G. So A, B, C, D, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and, then, and then they changed it over time. It, was, it didn't immediately go to the QWERTY uh, uh, lineup. But they realized over time, like they could type faster if, for this specific use case, like the uh, the Morse code um, translation, if it was set up differently. And then they kept changing it over time, kept changing it and changing it. And so that's just one example of that. I feel like I should know more about this. I, I've never actually. I'm sort of ashamed to say this, but I, I don't think I've ever actually researched where something as significant as a keyboard to interaction design and uh, software. Um, I, I don't know where it comes from. That's kind of, I'm kind of ashamed to say that. I, I think I need to figure that out. So I, I don't know, you maybe, maybe I'm putting you on the spot here, but yeah. um, when did that become standardized? Like how did that become? I guess we're going off topic. I don't know when it actually became standardized, okay. but um, I know that the kind of original typewriters and you know typing devices, they were actually originally, they looked like piano keys. They were in order. Because, um, of course, when you think, I need to press a key, mm -hmm. you think, of what's the other thing that right. has keys? Pianos. Um, right. And they were very okay. small. And they were, like, just for typing a few keys. But um, mm -hmm. I, uh, I did some research uh, before this podcast. Uh, 
you know, Maybe a we'll rarity, a but I actually did some research. <laughs> Maybe we'll do a retro bite on the history of uh, keyboards. Yeah, I think over time in the early 1900s is kind of when it became uh, standardized. Okay, interesting. So um, I, I imagine this is another thing I, that you think about when you, when I think about butterfly effect. When, when those people that were designing this um, for wartime, they probably never imagined how it would be used 100 years later. Yeah. I mean, it was probably never. I, I can't. I mean, I can't believe any of them would have ever thought anything about personal computers and phones with you know keyboards on them and things like that. I mean, like, how am I going to easily like, be able to type a sentence on the toilet with my thumb? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, is this is this layout really worth uh, or, or uh, efficient for one-handed typing on my thumb while I'm holding a phone? No, of course not. Um, and that's really interesting. The other thing that I think about too, when I think about this is sort of the, the tail end of it. And I, I don't know if this is the right term for it, but I, I call it like the Facebook effect where, you know, Facebook changes the layout and the internet, you know, explodes. Yeah. Um, and people have, have like a fit because Facebook changed its layout and I, you know, they've changed it a few times and I, I don't know, honestly, I got rid of my Facebook account. So I don't even know how many people complain. I have no idea, but they recently changed it again. I know like they added a dark theme or whatever I read online. Um, but I remember this was like like a while ago, I guess that when they first started, first came out, it hadn't changed the layout in like you know seven or eight years. And then when they changed it and they moved the you know the info from the left to the right or whatever they did, uh, people hated it. Even though it may have been better designed and more efficient, they hated it uh, because it wasn't what they were used to. And in that case, you know, you made some design decisions way back in the day when Facebook first started, when it was like you know just for Yale or Harvard or whatever it was. Um, and they never expected it. I'm sure when they designed that to end up being this like global communication tool that it became and, you know, they didn't probably didn't expect to have to change it. And, uh, you know, nobody thought about that. That's kind of the tail end of it. I call it, the, I don't know if the Facebook effect is a real thing, but so that's, so, so then in that case, I guess it begs a question, um, as software engineers, people or designers, software teams, how, how might we account for this? Well, actually, hold we on to the point you had before, because I had a, I had uh, oh, okay. a point of, you, you had made previously about why you feel bad that you never looked into why a, a, a keyboard is structured the way it is. Yeah, it's just because it you never had to. It's because right. it yeah, always yeah. is that way. It's like it's like there it's are things the in our environment that are just like, they're just, that's what they are. Like a keyboard is a keyboard. When you turn on the water, I don't really have to care about the whole infrastructure, uh-huh. about where it goes, because I have so many other things to worry about. You know, you got to worry about your yeah. kids, the online schooling, the, the this, the that, like, like mm-hmm. it's, I find it though, sometimes sitting back and thinking about why little things we use were the way they were, it makes the world seem so much smaller or, or it makes the world make more sense to me, you know, even just learning mm-hmm. a little thing like that. So I always kind of enjoy so, digging that stuff. So this is, this is totally off topic, but I only recently found out that the little the little teeth on a fork are called tines. I, I had no idea. That. I had no idea. So you just said it. Yeah. They have they have a name. It's called a tine. And that's that's what they're called. I had no idea. And the person that told me, they were like, Yeah, you don't know what that's called. I'm like, why would I have ever had to think about what the, the, the teeth of a fork are called? <laughs> anyway, totally off topic. But that's, um No, I mean I yeah, think I that's, that's it that's a, it illustrates the point though that there are certain things we take for granted. And it's because we don't need to learn more about them in order to live our lives. Mm-hmm. The, uh, the Facebook right. effect thing you mentioned was interesting to me because when a system is heavily used, mm-hmm. people get used to even its quirks. 
their quirks become the features mm-hmm, yeah. the the you know why is why does it take 10 seconds for me to do these things i've told the story before but the the whole starbucks thing about you know how they right. you know changed their you know i told that last time but you, you expect things to work a certain way because they have forever and you you've talked about that quite yeah. a bit but um, yeah, I just thought that's really, and you take it for granted and you just assume it'll always be that way. And right. then if something does change or maybe it's out of your control, maybe it changes because I, you know, God, I don't know, like maybe there's a global pandemic and, and we all have to work from home suddenly. <laughs> and the way that we had designed some system no longer works because, you know, we're not in an office anymore and we're at home on personal computers. And so our corporate infrastructure wasn't built to handle that. Because we just assumed it would always, we'd always be working from an office. Well, you know, there's a lot of consequences there for actions that we we just never thought about or never thought we would. God forbid. I hope that never happens. But you know, you get the idea. So check this out. Let's talk about butterfly effect in the in the context of what we're dealing with right now. What you're probably dealing with, this faithful listener. So check this out. You're probably at home. You're probably uh, either in a, in an office or your kitchen or whatever. Um, or maybe you're driving somewhere, probably not to work, right? Because you we are working from home right now. We're we're our systems are changing to accommodate our needs now, because it's so important that the world keep turning and the economy keep moving. So the systems need to affect us now. Now imagine twenty years from now when you look back and how systems were modified to handle this moment in time. They're going to have things in them that you're going to look back and say, like, why did they add like 20 more servers to the VPN? Mm-hmm. It, it doesn't need to handle that much space. We're, we, we right. don't, we're never on the VPN. Oh, that's right. Somebody told me back 20 years ago they had that pandemic and they had to add a... Right, right, right. Everything, a lot of things we're doing right now. And, and all the, look, think about the way we consume food, our packages, like curbside uh-huh. pickup. I never even heard that was a thing until recently. Right. Um, so butterfly effect doesn't have to start at the origin to really yeah, make it an impact. It can be somewhere it's, along the way, sure. Yeah, it starts when something significant changes, really, it seems like. Then you have to rethink your decision about, all right, are we making changes that are going to make you know, the future more difficult? You know, you mentioned, though, that, that it happens when it's significant events. But I think the the interesting aspect of the butterfly effect is that a lot of times, big things happen because of very insignificant or small events. You know, the horseshoe uh, and the nail, for instance. We lost the battle and the war and the kingdom um, because uh, that horse didn't have uh, the horseshoe, and it, it it couldn't you know it couldn't fight in the battle. So, um, you know, thinking back there, that's where I, I I I think this is interesting because the things that we think are insignificant, a lot of times are insignificant. It's the small percentage, you know, the 80-20 rule. It might be the, the uh, 20% of those insignificant events that end up becoming uh, 80% of our, our headache. Yeah. Um, and so I, I wonder how, how we can, um, as a software team, prepare for those and account for those so that we, uh, you know, are at least, a, you know, you can't fix everything, obviously, and you can't, um, you, can't uh, you know, prepare for everything. But you can certainly think ahead and maybe plan for some some of the the the, uh, the issues or some of the events or something. You know, regardless of how insignificant you might think they are. One of the things that we ha- have done in the past, which I thought was a, a really interesting tool, was this idea of a a, a pre mortem. Mm. 
So you do, you know you, you you think of what a postmortem is. So oh, we had this thing and it went wrong, it went horribly wrong. What happened? What caused it to go bad? Right. That's a postmortem. Post after premortem though would be. Um, we haven't released this thing yet. We haven't released the software yet, but we know what our plan is to maybe build and release. Let's think before we ever get to that point, some worst case scenarios. What are some things that could go wrong? You could use that opportunity to analyze a lot of those seemingly insignificant events and say, well, if we decided to use this language or this server uh, tool or whatever, what could happen? And you can sort of, you know, think ahead and plan so that you can either address it early or just assume the risk and, and hope that those things don't occur. Yeah, this decisions, that's a, that's a perfect point. The decisions that we're making day to day, we don't often, and it, it, the thing about the pre-mortem, it's fantastic. It's almost like we have to have, in order for it to be sustainable, we have to have a pre-mortem mindset as we build systems, mm-hmm. as we especially systems that are as easy to kind of manipulate and change and make crazy decisions about as software. We got to have a pre-mortem mindset as we go, because if we don't, then when it's my turn to make a decision about the way a, uh, like a database table should be named, and I make, mm-hmm. a, I make a really silly one, all the conventions go one way. Now I'm conflicting with names of another system. They're confused. Like this is happening to me right now in my, in my, uh, um, my job, the, the systems are very complicated. It's a big enterprise system. It probably started very simply, like you were saying. They had a uh, maybe. Maybe they even did the pre-mortem. Maybe they did the perfect job of trying to think in the future. But as things went on, people just did what they normally do, and they tried to make the best decision they could at the time. Some were wrong. Some were right. Those little trickles of butterfly wing, you know, flutterings so do you, created big do issues. Do you think that like something like guardrails or, you know, some kind of uh, someone enforcing some set of rules would have changed any of that? Or do you think it was just people doing things with the best information they had, not really expecting the tool to be used a certain way or some outside event happening that, you know, changed something or I don't know. what. Where do you think? You want to talk about that scenario? Where do you, where do you think... Um, where do you think they went? They went wrong. I, I, I don't know. It's not easy to say where they went wrong because I don't know the whole history. You know, I, I relatively new to the product or projects or whatever, um, however you say it. When you were talking about the pre-mortem, so like, there's no, there's no silver bullet to this problem. Is what I was trying to get at. The pre-mortem right, is okay. what you need to do. You can't get by by just starting a project, assuming everything's going to go well and moving forward. If you don't try this, this pre-mortem technique, then you're setting yourself way behind. Like you're giving yourself like much less of a chance of success. To add to your chance of success of actually like delivering whatever it is the goal was for the company or, or just your, you know, if you're building a, a project around the house, whatever, um, is as you're doing it every step, the team itself, like this is kind of, maybe this is culture, Maybe it's like discipline. Maybe it's rigor. I don't know. The team itself needs to consistently be asking the questions, am I doing this in a way that is going to have impacts in the future? And sometimes the answer is going to be, I'm not sure, but I need to move forward. And those aren't bad decisions. Those are just like inevitable uh, decisions that had to be made at the time. What Something that Jeff Bezos said uh, uh, what is it? I think I think you have to call him like Thanos now. 
I'm not sure what the rules are. Uh, I, did, I didn't check my Amazon account, but um, uh, I, there, I, got an, I got an email. He basically said, like, it's, it's in failing that you start to fail less. So, like, he expects his people to fail less over time, but he still expects them to fail. And failure is making a decision that does not have the intended outcome. That's all a failure is, right? I mean, really, if you make a decision or, or you sure. go about doing something, or I guess you could execute something incorrectly, but execution is partly deciding to do something a certain way and then just going to do it. Yeah, if you, if you, if you set out to fail and, and you fail, then you actually succeeded. There you go. <laughs> That's what we should do. More, 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 more failing. Mind blown. Yeah, damn. <laughs> um, but, but yeah, I think that uh, in, on, in the system I work with, it's a lot of systems that uh, maybe maybe they have the same responsibility. So w- mm-hmm. one bad decision was that the the teams didn't communicate. There was no communication structure as the company mm-hmm. shifted over time and people changed jobs and people and then little fiefdoms or fiefdoms uh, set up. Um, right. And, and then they didn't want to talk to each other, so they built their own thing. And then this. So like we talked about a million times before, communication cohesiveness, the way we go about solving problems for our company and maybe our, our users or whatever, that's the most important thing. If you don't have that, a clear path forward and cohesiveness communication, then it's very easy to make the wrong decision. The question we should be asking ourselves is, how do I make the wrong decision less often? What are the things I can do to make the wrong decision less often? Uh, you know, it's like, you can't always make the right decision. Like that's impossible. Um, and how can I avoid effing up, you know? Yeah, no, I like that. Um, yeah, make the, make the, uh, the right decision more often or make the wrong decision less often. The other thing that, um, thinking through what you're just saying, part of the, maybe this is not communication. I don't know if it's communication or not, but making assumptions, Mm. um, and assuming that people did something a certain way or assuming the reason behind why they did something a certain way. You know, it does tie into the communication and communicating with that person, seeing if that is uh, what happened. I mean, in enterprise software, though, a lot of times the person that made some decision is long gone. Uh, and when I think about enterprise software, I, I think about some of the tools that I've seen uh, in my experience, like, for instance, software that was released in the 90s. Not only are those people long gone, but they probably retired and they're, they're probably sitting on a beach somewhere, you know, never thinking about work again. At this point, they, they released this stuff so long ago. So I guess the thing that's interesting, too, about enterprise software is that it, it lasts forever, seems like, you know, it never like you think about something like um, Facebook and, and how long it's been around. It's probably be, been rewritten. Who knows how many times? Um, you know, the back ends totally changed. They probably using a completely different front end framework than when they did. But when it comes to enterprise software, that thing that you write that you think is going to be temporary is probably going to be there years and years and years from now, even if it's what quote unquote MVP. The other thing I think about is um, when you're starting out a project or a product or something or a feature, you know, going back, we talked about this in the previous episode, but what is really our MVP? You know, and what is the scope of this MVP? And is the MVP meant to be a test that will be scrapped and rewritten once we decide if it works or not? Or is that MVP meant to be a foundation for future features? So mm. are we going to build this foundation so that we can iterate on this MVP? Um, we're going to build a minimum set of features that we will then add to and not scrap this code base, but add to this code base. If that's the case, when we're building out this thing, the MVP, the minimum should be 
very well thought out. It shouldn't be hastily put together because it's a quote unquote MVP. And I think in that case, you know, you think about uh, you should be doing these types of pre-mortems and, and validating often and doing your testing and things like that. You know, I think I, I approach this from a design perspective, being a designer, where you can actually validate pretty easily. You can put a, a set of uh, features in front of a user and have them test it to see if what we're going to build is the right thing. From a developer's perspective, I'm not sure how you do that. Maybe you could do stress tests or something. But, you know, when you decide on a code base or you decide on a front end language or a back end uh, architecture or something, I don't know if it can really be comparable to design. It is kind of. I mean, how do you decide if a design is good or bad? A lot of times there are some rules that you need to follow in order to make sure that you're not, uh, you know, affecting users in, a, in a, an improper way or like giving them. Uh, too much to look at on a screen. I know you talk about that a lot. Like they don't need to see everything, you know, mm -hmm. that's a principle. So the principles of how we build the things we build are the things that we all need to kind of agree upon. We do not want in software. There are a lot of principles. I'm not going to go into all of them, but um, maybe, maybe I could give an example. Maybe we say, I want to make sure that every little module I build has one responsibility, only one. So that when I use it, I know exactly what it's going to do. It doesn't do a million things when I do when I ask it to do one thing. This is a simple thing that we could all like agree upon in the team, and it changes the structure of the code. How you make a decision about a backend framework, for example, find out what it does, what it's good at. Experienced people may have worked with many of them, so you compare them together. You can also determine. What does this allow me to do? How does this allow me to you know, work? And you can ask questions like, how long has it been around? How much support does it have? How many other people use it? Um, you don't want to use things, especially in software that have like, are on the, on the downturn. You want to use things that are kind of in the middle or on the upturn uh, because you want your software to be able to be supported in the future. There is a dangerous term that's being used in the industry right now. It's being been used for a while. And we illustrated in our, in our discussions today why it's a dangerous term. That term is best practice. Oh. So think about when you're starting a project. Dun, dun, dun. 1998. The best practice for building a software project in 1998, uh, you may have, have looked at some patterns. Patterns that people don't even use anymore. The three-tiered pattern. Um, that's the one that comes to mind because that was just so prevalent back then. But... Uh, you know, there were, uh, everything was built on premise because for security reasons, mm -hmm. they didn't want to, you know, put things in a shared environment. There were a lot of other things uh, that went into that as well. And over time, that practice, that best practice changed and it changed quickly, very quickly. A couple years went by. Oh, what's this? Amazon's got a, a server that you can just deploy stuff to. You don't have to stand up your own stuff. And it's cheap. And then you ask the question, well, isn't it insecure? Although all the people who were working on the previous things, isn't it insecure? And then the Amazon says, well, no, it's not. Here's how you secure it. That's fact. It's more secure than your stuff. Because you are you have to like actually manage the servers and lock the door in order to, to make sure nobody goes in there and turns it off. We have all that mm -hmm. taken care of for you. We have guys with guns outside of warehouses, you know, that, that are going to maintain really? that for you. Um I could easily say Amazon probably has their own like private army. I would think. Yeah, probably so. Um, Scary. They they come out of portals when when the uh, you know anyway. Oh. So yeah, the the idea of a best practice, while in the moment 
it is a wonderful idea. You got to know what's the most, what's the best practice of today. But you also got to think about how is this best practice historically? Best practices come in a, f- a few flavors. They're not like if you if you see a best practice for like um, a language. Oh, we definitely need to use this language. It's the best practice, or this is the best way to structure your code. That's the best practice right now. Look at other languages that have had that best practice in the past and then modified them. And look at why. You can you can do some research by asking people that have worked on those other languages or other architectures. Um, there are people who have been doing software for a while that feel like some of the ways that Amazon is encouraging people to build their applications is actually very similar to an old way we've long abandoned because technology is a little bit different now. And so making something that was kind of a, a really, really clunky idea in the 90s if you do it today using this new technology, yeah, it's a, because of the tooling's a little different, makes it a little simpler. But I always think, find that so fascinating that like a bad idea from years ago can resurface itself years later with a different name. And all of a sudden, it's a, it's a new idea. This happens in politics. This happens everywhere. But um, I so, just, hold I on, I got a question about this. So in this case, though, was it, was it a bad idea because the execution was difficult because of the technology in Amazon made the execution easier and therefore it's now a viable idea again or is it still a bad idea just be, even though amazon <laughs> no no so this, this is this it. is uh this is an example of maybe and i don't know yet history has not told us exactly how to build software we haven't been doing it long enough but mm-hmm. if you look back at the systems that have succeeded and failed from those days um Ones that became hard to maintain. A lot of times we don't think about the human aspects of maintenance of software. You need to actually have people who un- to understand the systems and modify them over time. If their job is difficult, they are naturally going to be encouraged to do less. And maybe mm-hmm. we expected them to do a little more. So in, in Amazon's case, they're updating the servers for you. They're updating everything for you. You just need to put your code out there so it runs. Similar concept to what we used to do in the 90s, but all the infrastructure maintenance and management was on the, like, had to be managed by the company. You're outsourcing that now. Now, the cost difference may, like, you may look back and say, well, we did that because it costs more, but there was no option to use Amazon in the 90s. You know what I mean? Um, Right. So it's probably cost, it's probably everything you just mentioned. Yeah. Well, it's interesting, too, because this, I guess, could be part of your pre-mortem, but I don't know. Let's say, like, the federal government decides to break up Amazon because they're a monopoly. And now what? You know, does Amazon Web Services go away? Does Amazon Web Services spin off into its own company? Um, Is Amazon Web Service broken up into separate companies? And what does that mean for your software that's sitting on their servers when you don't control those anymore? You know, know, I'll tell you a um, funny example of that. Um, You think you own the software you buy from Amazon? Do you think that's air you're breathing now? You know, like from The Matrix. Um, <laughs> it's like, uh, you don't. You don't. You own the right to to play it uh, mm-hmm. on from their servers f- while their servers exist, while their service exists. That's what you paid for. Mm-hmm. There's a, there's a, right. a Christmas, it's, it's Christmas time right now, or, or getting close to it. Uh, ask the radio stations, it's been Christmas time for a month. Um, <laughs> uh 
where there's a show. I was at Target the other night. They've already got Christmas decorations up. So. Oh yeah, dude. It's it's. And it's uh, not they, even <laughs> I've been to places. It's like October first, and they're already like <laughs> Christmas is. Right you know, I think here. mostly people just want this year to be over with so badly that they're just like rushing it. It's like yeah, like people in my neighborhood already have Christmas lights up. They've already got like I, oh, some. Yeah, of my dude. neighbor actually has a Christmas tree up. And I can see it from their front window. Um, I think people just want this year to be over with so fast. They're just like, come on, come on, Christmas, come on, Christmas. Yeah. Anyway, so come on, go ahead. Come I interrupted on. you. Yeah. No, you're right, man. You're absolutely right. But I was thinking, I, I purchased this show. It's called uh, Prep and Landing. It was a movie. It was a kid's movie. And they ha- Amazon had this weird thing where they would not allow you to watch it during the holidays because they, they had an agreement with another group that even if you paid for it, you couldn't watch it on their service. You look at the terms and conditions, turns out Amazon has the right to turn things on and off. You don't own the right to the way they what? serve you their information. That so who's insane. to say web services, brother, who's to say AWS doesn't have something in their, in their clause where some draconian thing happens and you're all of a sudden, wait a minute, I, I'm hosting my services here. Now it's twice as expensive and I can't move mm-hmm. them off because we didn't plan for Amazon to up the prices by this much. Right, right, right. Yeah. We just have to well, trust I think about, being good. Um, you know, and I think like it, what's interesting though, me, I just keep coming back to this idea that enterprise software never seems to go away. It's so hard to change and replace and sunset enterprise software. Yeah. Once it starts to become used by more people, the harder it is to get rid of it. Um, and so those little things you just think, oh, well, Amazon is so cheap. It's pennies per, you know, whatever. Um, it's a, you know, a great idea for us. It's cheaper than us maintaining our own servers. You know, there's just no way to know what will happen with the software, you know, five years or 10 years from now. And, you know, I think I still think about, you know, some of these, some of these places I've visited through work where they're still using green screen mainframe type interfaces in 2020. And it's funny though, but I go back and I think about it and it's like, well, it works for them, <laughs> you know, <laughs> like it's, it's, uh, it's slow and it's not connected to other systems and things like that, but they're still getting work done. And is that necessarily a bad thing? You know, what is the rush to replace this software if it's working? Um, unless there's some you know, urgent need to replace it, it won't get replaced. And you're not going to replace it just because the technology is newer, might be a little bit easier to maintain or easier to use uh, for the user. Um, If you train the user to use the old, less usable software, I'll say usable in the sense it's, you know, usability wasn't taken into consideration 30 years ago like it is today. But if they're trained on it and they know how to use it, what is the rush to change it? Yeah, dude, I think Unless about that every time I go to like things or something, you know. Yeah, every time I go to like a car dealership to like get my car serviced, I look at their systems yeah. and I'm like, how do you live this way? Oh, and I they're know. just and like, <laughs> oh dude, they brought in a system. They, every time they're like, oh no, they're upgrading the system. We're so upset. We yeah, can get it everything changes. done. It's the Facebook effect, right? Yeah, all our reports printed yeah. out just fine. Now we got to go tell we got to go tell the software people, the IT people they call them, how to how to fix yeah. all their broken systems they're trying to replace ours, you know. It's like Man, like you know, it's I, funny. I um, this reminds me of a trip I took to uh, to some users a couple of years ago, and they were using this old mainframe type interface. No, you couldn't even use a mouse on this system. It was just all key commands and everything else. So they upgraded it so that you could use a mouse, and the new system didn't have the key commands. Mm. They did not include the key commands, and so we're like, well, you don't need them anymore because you have a mouse. Every person I talked to was upset that they had to use a mouse 
and they couldn't use the key commands ever, anymore because they were so used to using this old antiquated system and they all got really fast at it and really good at it. They, they had to, you know, it wasn't intuitive anymore to use a mouse. Um, but you think about this, though, and this is sort of where this, and I don't even know if this is really the butterfly effect, to be honest, because to me, long term, the answer is to upgrade because the, when those people retire or leave and you replace them with new people, training will be cheaper, onboarding will be faster, they'll get more efficient quicker, um, and, and, and you'll actually end up seeing a lot more benefits over time. But it's that sort of short term, you know, it's just like, to me, that's the Facebook effect. It's like the short term pissed off user who just like hates the new thing. But when people come in on board to use it later, they end up, they end up liking it and it ends up being better in the long term. So I don't really know if that's the butterfly effect, but it's just interesting how the decision that they made 30 years ago, they never thought about having this software around. For, I'm sure they never thought about this software being around in 2020 when they installed this thing in the 90s. Um, and so, uh, you know, how did their decisions change, uh, you know, how users are using this thing 30 years from now, or 30 years from then? Yeah, yeah you know, it's, it's funny. Interesting. It's funny you said that because uh, I've been recently thinking about that, almost that exact same concept when it comes to like you're building a piece of software and you're trying to make a decision about the future and you want to you want to have influence over that that future okay let's say let's say you're Steve Jobs and you want to have influence over how people use personal computers you don't care about the people that are currently using personal computers you don't mm -hmm. care about the people that are using soft keys at the top of their keyboard or or you know are, are just amazed with the command line interface like those aren't your target users you're targeting the future you're targeting people who haven't touched a computer yet you know what i mean and yeah it's it's who are the people you're actually building the software for is it the people that are in the shops now or not the shops let's say the 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 work the workshop now or the or the auto dealership now or is it the people there 10 years from now who you know are going to be riding in on hoverboards and uh with cool multicolored hats, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. um, with power. Power, yeah, you got to have power. Uh, yeah, because otherwise you can't go over water. Um, exactly, yeah, unless you got power. Um, so that, that's what, it got me thinking because, um, you know, I really started, I've been, I've been thinking a lot about uh, how important it is when you have a good idea, a good idea, and everybody else thinks that... Um, Let's say a good idea about how things should be in the future. Everybody else thinks should, things should be the same. They shouldn't change. They shouldn't. They shouldn't be mucked up. But you know that not only do are they asking for things to change, but you know, like sort of, we have a directive right now to change something, change the way people do something. And the people who are doing it are saying we 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 don't necessarily. Oh no, the people who are doing it say we're. We're so used to doing it this way, we want to change. When we're so used to doing it this way, we don't really want to go through the effort to change. If you build a, if you build a sort of system where they have no choice but to migrate to whatever it is the new thing is, whether it's good or bad, you've made you've 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 taken that decision out of their hands and now they don't have to worry about whether it's too much effort or not because they have to do it. It just it's, is it's, what it is. It's it's difficult for me to because I I always fought against that that authoritarian kind of like like you're gonna do it my way or else you know um yeah. but this isn't what this is you're basically eliminating paths for them 
to stub their toe, you know, to shoot themselves in the foot. That's what we're doing. That's what the butterfly effect is all about to me. It's, it's how do you eliminate the bad paths, even from people who are completely well-meaning. They just don't realize how important it is to take that bit of effort and get on the right path. You know what I mean? Well, uh, yeah, so the, the trick, future. though, is with, yeah, the trick with the butterfly effect, though, is to eliminate, you mentioned stubbing their toe, eliminate the option to stub their toe before they would have ever been in the scenario where they would have stubbed their toe. Yes. So planning yeah. ahead, right? And this is the idea, like validating early, you know, preparing for something is better than fixing something, right? Uh, keeping someone from stubbing their toe is cheaper than fixing a broken toe or walking around for two weeks with a broken toe. Right. Like planning is better than walking around with a broken toe and or, you know, I don't know, fixing it. I guess you can't really fix a broken toe. Uh, like what can you fix? Like you break your arm putting in a cast or something. That's yeah. that's more expensive than never breaking your arm to begin with. Um, like preventative so, medicine. So, you know, right, exactly. Um, and, and just thinking about that. And I think that's where those pre-mortems, I don't know, what other tools um, pre-mortems, uh, just the validating early, doing those testing type things. So, you know, I think for usability testing, I think is a big one. I think uh, uh, it's much cheaper to same thing we keep saying use. about communication, right? Yeah, that one. Yeah, communicating early and often, not making assumptions about things, and validating those assumptions if you do have assumptions, um, and just understanding. I think when it comes to what you're releasing, um, are you okay with it being around? for a long period of time and, and yeah. what happens if it ends up sticking around for much longer than you expected. Um, I think that's something people don't tend to think about. I think we tend to think like, oh, this is going to get replaced one day. Whatever. We'll go back and fix it or whatever. And that generally never happens, especially in enterprise software. And I think that for a lot of people, they tend to ignore inevitable things because it's easier to do that. Um, you can ignore the inevitability of uh, maybe users using the system a certain way or something like that. But um, you can ignore the inevitability of the company is eventually changing. Uh, but all those things have an impact on the way you build the things you built, you know? Yeah, right on. So do we have a, uh, we should put together like a pre-mortem template or something if we haven't, uh, if we can't find anything online. Those would be some interesting things that I think release with this episode, some some helpful kind of documents to, to help people go through this process. Yeah. I don't know. I didn't even look to see if that was something that was available. I should I do that. Be a good we should thing, do that yeah. kind of stuff before we record. <laughs> yeah. Well, they don't need to know. They don't need to know. What yeah. Yeah. We'll just say, yeah, I guess that's true. We just cut this part of the episode out. You'll never hear this, dear listener. So that's it. I think that's, uh, I think that's everything I have to say. Derek, what about you? You got anything else? I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm tapped out, man. Thank you. Thank Pretty you for uh, bringing don't this topic to us. The post. Yeah, man, for sure. Um, you know, I'm freezing, Derek. It's so cold. I, well, my South Louisiana body is not used to this, this temperature here. I think it's only like in the forties too. I don't even think it's like, well, we're new here. Um, we're new I hear here. it's going to snow oh, next God. weekend, man. That's what I heard. Oh, is it really? Yeah. Oh, I think we're, we're going to be in new Orleans. So, um, Oh, okay. Cool. We're coming back. Yeah. So I'll be, they'll be like in the sixties down there. I'll be yeah, wearing right. a t-shirt. <laughs> oh man. I'm going to bring my tank top and my flip flops and I'm going to go get a snowball in the sixties. Classic Jeremy. Next week. <laughs> All right, man. <laughs> anyway, all right, y'all. So listen, um, we've got uh, we got all that stuff for you to go check out, RetroTimePodcast.com, Facebook, and Twitter. If we haven't told you before, like us, uh, subscribe, five-star review, get a free song. Derek will play it for you on the air, live recording <laughs> on the air, uh, and we'll, we'll be your best friends if you do that. 
So if you want to be best friends with me and Derek, uh, leave a five-star review wherever you listen to podcasts. Awesome. Take it easy, guys. (laughs) All right. I'll holler at you guys. Um, A, B, C, D, E, F, G. So A, B, C, D. Okay. Yeah.